Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Jason Mott. His new book is called Hell of a Book, and it is published by our friends at Dutton, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Jason, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, Jason, let me ask you, um, how have you negotiated the challenges of the last year and a half? And how do you anticipate the promotion of this book will be different than the books you have written before? Well, I think like everyone, the last year and a half has been a most bizarre time of life. Um, is I think I've negotiated pretty well. Like at my core, I'm a pretty much an introvert. So I like to be indoors by myself anyway, but I will say after a year and a half of that, I want people back. Right. Um, so it's been pretty good. Like I just spent a lot of time working on things and taking up new hobbies and just trying to pass the time as much as possible. Um, it has been interesting how with the launch of the new book and you know, at this particular period as of, you know, what, May or June right now, mm-hmm. um, we're in that transition from coming out of quarantine mm-hmm. And so the book tour is looking to be a mixture of online with a few in-person things sprinkled because everyone's still a little bit nervous, but mm. starting to get out. So it's going to be an interesting book tour. I think most of it will be, at least in the, in the beginning, will be purely online. But I know in the fall, I've got some in-person things coming up and there may be some more scheduled before that. It's just a matter of like how people's comfort zones starts to develop, how soon they want to come back to that. Um, mm. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. Good. Yeah, we had, um, as we sit here speaking on May 25th, we had our first in-person event at Quail Ridge Books two days ago. And um, it was weird, but it was also great. Um, yeah, I think that, so, that defines it. That's exactly yeah. it. Right. Great. Well, thank you, Jason. Let's dive into this novel, Hell of a Book. Um, we open the book upon a scene where a young boy is pretending to be invisible, is playing invisible in front of his parents uh, because his parents are trying to teach him to be invisible. A line that struck me about this boy's father is that he was a man that had been afraid of the eyes of others for his entire life. Uh, Why, Jason, was this boy's father afraid of the eyes of others? And why does he want his son to be invisible? Well, it's goes into a lot of what the book is trying to discuss. Um, So the boy in question is a young African-American boy and his parents are African-American male, obviously. And as you kind of develop through the book, you, there's a lot of discussion about police and police in the African-American community and how those two have interacted and let's just say not had the best history together. And what this parent wants more than anything else is for his son to be safe and to not be afraid the way that he was. Um, Because he's lived a life fearing, you know, just just kind of fearing police, fearing authority figures and being afraid of kind of America on the whole. Um, And so he just wants his son to have something different than that. Right. Thank you, Jason. And in the second chapter, we switch to a different point of view. And for much of this book, we go back and forth uh, between the two point of views. The narrator here is an author. We are soon witness to a sort of slapstick scene involving a woman, her husband, and our naked narrator in a hotel elevator. Um, This author, Jason, has a disorder where his mind runs away from him. Can you tell our listeners more about this disorder and what is going on here? 
Yeah, I think the best way to determine it, because um, when, I, when I was writing it, I, I didn't think of it as a disorder so much of, I thought of it as kind of the the writer's imagination taken to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just been, he's been writing so long and his the stress of his life, there are a lot of other events without giving too many spoilers away, there are a lot of events that kind of, he's under just a lot of pressure and he's getting to this point where he's just kind of, his imagination has gotten the better of him and it's kind of been that way for a while. He's gotten used to it, but at the same time, it creates a lot of wacky, bizarre, strange, beautiful and terrifying situations. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of came about just because I wanted him to be someone much like I am who sees the world differently than it is and lives in that for a long extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what writers do. We just create these fanciful worlds. We stay in there for a while. So he has that, but it's just taken, it's turned up to about 11. So he's, perpetually in this space where he's seeing things that aren't necessarily there, but he knows they're not there. And sometimes they become a comfort to him. Right. Thank you, Jason. Um, going back to the, the little boy, we soon, we soon uh, learn this boy who wants to be invisible that he's called soot uh, because of the color of his skin. Uh, why is he called this and what types of things is he having to endure from his classmates? Yeah, he's called Soot because he has just very, very dark black skin. Um, that it becomes his defining trait, whether he wants it to or not. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing, like there's a scene pretty early on in the book where he's on the bus and he's being bullied by a lot of his classmates and a lot of older, older kids, as you know, kids are oftentimes prone to do. And so much of the narrative is about him trying to find out what his skin color means to him and also what it means to the rest of the world and how those two are oftentimes at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so he's a character who very much is defined by the color of his skin, um, both by people who look like him and people who don't look like him. It just becomes the thing that he is known by so much so that that becomes his name, his name def- as a reflection of his skin color comes to define him. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, as an aside, Jason, do you think that bullying is worse um, now in 2021 with social media and things of that nature? Or do you think that it doesn't matter that bullying is the same regardless of the era? <laughs> I don't know that it's worse now than it ever was. I think it's just it just mutated and changed form. Mm-hmm. Um, social media, whether we want it, whether we like it or not, has sort of thrust all of us back into high school and, you know, middle school again. Mm-hmm. And what social, what bullying has done now that bullying used to didn't do was bullying follows you around a lot more than it used to. I mean, mm-hmm. in the past, if you had bullies at school, when you went home, they weren't there. Most mm-hmm. of the time they weren't there and you just, you were able to be yourself again. But now with social media, your phone is always with you. So the bullies are kind of always with you as well. And having to navigate that makes it a very different kind of experience. So maybe it is a little bit worse. Um, on the it's on the emotional level, I would say it is. So physically, you know, the bullies on the phone can't physically come get you, but if you have physical impact from the emotional strain of it. So it definitely it definitely follows you more now than it used to. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Jason. Um, before we go into our break, I want to talk about the meta narrative here. The author in this story, of course, has written a book called Hell of a Book. Um, 
as I'm reading this novel, I'm reminded of uh, Vladimir Nabokov and others who have excelled at telling a story with this sort of structure. Um, can you tell us what was the inspiration for writing a book called Hell of a Book about an author who wrote a book called Hell of a Book? <laughs> yeah, I I wanted to capture, I've always been a fan of experimental metafiction, whatever you want to call it, like stories within stories and their ability to not only buck tradition, but I think they have the potential to reframe narrative and reframe certain messages in ways that you can't easily get at in traditional story structure. Um, and so the story, the inspiration for it kind of began when I was on book tour for The Return back in 2013, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, I had such a wild, bizarre experience. Like book tours in and of themselves are strange things. Um, mm -hmm. They're fun, but they're also very strange. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to capture some of that feeling of having a successful book and being thrust from one type of life into this world of, you know, tours and the insanity of that experience. But I also mm -hmm. wanted to kind of make it very, com very comical, but also, you know, have pointed messages at certain points in times. So it definitely is rooted in my own experiences, not quite as extreme as they are in the book, um, but there's definitely roots there. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jason. And listeners, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. Before we do so, a warning uh, that after the break, we are going to get into some uh, spoiler content. So if you have not yet read Hell of a Book, uh, you may want to pause your podcast now and come back to it after you've read the book. For now, we're going to take a break and I will be right back with Jason Mott. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Jason Mott, author of Hell of a Book, which is published by our friends at Dutton, a division of Penguin Random House. And once again, listeners, we are going to get into some uh, spoiler-related content here. So if you haven't yet read this book, you may want to pause your podcast now. Uh, but before we get into that um, spoiler content, Jason, something about this novel, Hell of a Book, um, is that... Uh, it is uproariously funny. Um, and I want to talk about the culture crew um, a little bit. Can you tell us what the culture crew is, where they came from, and if this is something that you have experienced? Yes. The culture crew is very much based on a real world thing, not nearly as extreme as it is in the book. Um, but I used to work at a cell phone company. Um, answering phones and there was this team there who did this like they their job was to kind of keep everyone motivated and somewhat uplifted because the job was pretty brutal emotionally and <laughs> intellectually and all this kind of good stuff mm. so the i wanted to kind of poke a little bit of fun at those days and also kind of throw a nod back to people i used to work with there because we you know it was 
it was, it was one of those places where you didn't care for the job, but you cared for the people and you mm-hmm. kind of had to laugh at certain things. So that's where yeah. that all came from. Yeah. Um, I had a feeling that you had experienced this before. I used to work um, in a call center for a financial company. And like one of the weirdest, strangest experiences I had was like the, I don't know, one of the higher ups in this company like came out of an elevator one day and like his underlings were behind him and like making everyone clap as he walked through the building. (laughs) Um, not quite culture crew level, but definitely brought up. That's, that that's fitting though. That's not yeah, too far right? from it's it. Such a strange <laughs> environment. Um, Jason, I want to ask you about a line you wrote and you wrote this in a scene where our author narrator is in the process of writing hell of a book, uh, but the characters aren't going anywhere at this point in time. Um, and you write quote, naturalism is dead, at least in the marketplace End quote. Can you elaborate on this thought a little yeah, there, it's a comment being made there um, about you know the book market, and it's a, it's a bit of a bit of a cynical kind of discussion there about like the book market and how things are functioning now in like pop culture and entertainment industry, and the idea of like naturalistic novels and novels that are super grounded. Um, they they're not the biggest sellers, at least from the, this character's point of view. I want to kind of definitely put an asterisk here mm-hmm. and say this doesn't necessarily reflect my views on it, sure. but like this particular character is trying to make, he's making an argument um, that these types of books just don't exist anymore. You have to do something very different than that, that kind of, that paradigm of writing. So it was just, just a little bit of commentary and a certain viewpoint towards publishing and writing these days. Right, thank you, Jason. Um, Going back to our young boy protagonist for a moment, his father uh, in one scene takes him to um, the boy's grandfather's house and the grandfather shows the little boy drawings um, that his son, the little boy's father made. Wonderful drawings, beautiful drawings, uh, but drawings that the boy's father does not want him to see. Uh, What is the conflict in this scene, Jason? And why are these drawings such a sore spot for the young boy's father? Yeah, so the boy's Soot's father, the the drawings that he drew when he was younger were these um, very beautiful images of heroes and kings and queens and things of that manner, but they were all white. Like he didn't have the capacity, even though he was black, he didn't have the capacity to visualize himself and to draw people who were black. Like his father, um, his father only wanted him to draw that. And his father didn't want him to draw black people. And then when he did, um, his father kind of came down on him about it. it. It made him lose his love of drawing. And so for Soot's father, these drawings represent this, both innocence and this skewed part of his innocence where he wasn't able to see himself mm. in these stories that he loved and these characters that he loved so much. And because of it, he lost a bit of his identity and that eventually led to him losing his art. And so he's kind of struggling with that. Yeah, and um, we are told in this scene that this is the last time that Soot saw his grandfather. Uh, and we learn that there are so many things that the boy wants to ask 
about his grandfather and about the conflict between his father and grandfather, but he doesn't ask any of these questions. Uh, he remains silent. And my question regarding this scene, Jason, is why, uh, especially for a certain type of child, do you think the path of silence is chosen in these types of situations? As an adult, I would say to this child, ask those questions, always ask those questions, but why do you think children shy away? I think children shy away from it because oftentimes they don't feel powerful enough to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. And that is also part of Soot's identity. Like Soot is this kid who has been bullied very often, who feels like his, he wants to be able to turn invisible. He wants to not be there in so many ways. And so asking a question is very much, a, you're holding a flag up saying, hey, you know, here I am, I have this question, I want to kind of probe and prod and whatever. And that just runs very contradictory to who Soot is. And, and it's a part of himself that he doesn't necessarily like, that he's kind of struggling with as, as part of his character identity. And yet in this current moment, it does kind of hamstring him because he has all these questions that he wants to ask, but because of his, his kind of fear of the situation um, and his, his worry over not, not wanting to be seen and just wanting to be kind of small and invisible, he misses that opportunity to ask those questions. Right. Thank you so much, Jason. Um, now I want to get into kind of the heavy spoiler related content. Listeners, this is your last chance to pause. Um, much of this book, um, so I mentioned earlier that it starts as a sort of uproariously funny book, but man, does it take a turn. <laughs> um, and it becomes very serious very quickly. And um, much of it deals with shootings, um, specifically shootings at the hands of the police um and with this in mind and your book in mind i'm hoping that we can kind of broaden this question and um i want to ask you what does it mean to you jason to be an american in the year 2021 oh man you got like another hour that's the <laughs> that's a very layered complex question right there i think that being a not only being an American, but being also a Black American, because part of part of the contract with America is that if you are of a certain skin color, you're not allowed to only be an American. Like this other part of you has to be part of your identity, whether you want it to or not. And that comes with a certain amount of duality. Like I actually, I love I love America. Like this is the land of my parents and their parents, and onward and onward. And America has a lot of it. It really is that melting pot country when it wants to be. The America can be one of the most amazing, beautiful countries to ever exist. I think it is It is very iconic and very revolutionary in all those right ways. But it's a double-edged sword because oftentimes America doesn't live up to the promise of the American brochure. And that is where the conflict comes in. And so for me, as far as how I feel being an American in 2021, um, it is there is a flawed sense of pride because um, I am at times proud to be American. And then there are a whole lot of times when I am very ashamed and even afraid to be an American, to be a black American in particular. The fact that the rules of America function very differently for me than they do for massive other demographics of the American population is something that I struggle to kind of come to terms with. And it is something that needs to be changed and something that has needed to be changed for hundreds of years now. And we're still struggling to actually make that change. So, yeah, I mean, it is a very layered, complex relationship to be black in America right now. 
because it is your home country. It is the place that you grew up eating muscadine grapes with your grandparents and having those wonderful experiences that we all have. And yet at the same time, it is also the country that hanged a lot of your grandparents, people and things like that. So what do you do with that? And it's something that I think I myself and people like me will always be struggling to figure out on a day-to-day basis. How do you feel about that? So ask me today, you get one answer. Ask me tomorrow, you make an entirely different answer. Yeah. And that's the complex nature of the question. Thank you for that answer, Jason. And um, as a sort of um, addendum to that question, do you and or um, do Soot's parents in this book think the police are too militarized? And if the answer is yes, um, how do you think that gets resolved? Yeah. So the characters in the novel, um, yeah, their their opinion on this isn't very clear. I think they because they're so busy dealing with this, the reality of their existence and trying to find their place within that. Um, as for myself, Jason Mott as a person, um, I do think that there has been a. I, I don't just think like objectively, the the militarization of the police is something that's been going on for a few decades now, and it has been ramping up just dramatically. So particularly since nine eleven. Um, and I do think that is something that needs to be looked at and needs to be adjusted. Like, I'm not I'm not someone who says that police should not exist because obviously police should exist. And I honestly think that police don't get paid enough. Like they don't have enough, like police have a very difficult job. And yet at the same time, the difficulty of that job does not necessarily mean that it should come without accountability. And that is mm-hmm. the biggest part of the discussion that oftentimes gets when people start screaming, they shout over the part of accountability. Like oftentimes the Black Lives Matter movement, the any police reform movements, I would argue, well, most police reform movements, they're not trying to get rid of the police. They're not trying to punish the, they're not trying to kind of berate and attack the police. All they want is a certain degree of increased accountability and increased transparency, um, which I think are pretty reasonable for any any citizen of any country you should be able to have a certain degree of transparency and accountability for those who enforce the laws that you have voted into place oftentimes. And I don't think that should be controversial. And what we're seeing now in America is this, what we've been seeing, well, what we've always seen in America is this idea that oftentimes accountability and transparency don't apply when it comes to certain demographics and certain professions and police are one of those professions. So while I am a big supporter of the police in general, I also have to fact understand the fact that like it's an industry that needs to be policed. To put not too bad of a pun on it, um, mm-hmm. but it needs to have more accountability, more transparency. Yeah, right on. Thank you. And I don't think that this is something that's explicitly stated by Soot's parents in hell of a book, but I think that it's implied, such as Soot, you need to be invisible um, because the police are militarized against you um, partially. Um, And so I think that that is, it all ties together. But Jason, to um, totally switch gears um, and to wrap things up here, um, 
you and I are social media friends, even though we haven't ever really spoken because we have a lot of the same professional acquaintances, et cetera. And that's just how social media works these days. But um, as a result, in my you know Facebook feed, I have seen you live through this um, sort of fascination with Nicolas Cage. And, <laughs> um, and that sort of uh, plays out also it crosses over into the world of hell of a book um so i'm wondering if you can tell me where this fascination came from oh man that's the uh that's the million dollar question right there yeah, yeah i have been a major nicholas cage fan for decades um even before it was cool to be a nicholas cage fan i was a nicholas cage fan mm-hmm. and it just it grew out of you know love of him as an actor um, I think he's had he's had a very a very bizarre kind of career. I don't think it's bad to say he's had a bizarre career, mm-hmm. um, but I remember him explicitly from raising Arizona and like Face Off back in the day and leaving Las Vegas and like those three films in particular represent a traumatic range of ability as an actor to be in all those kinds of films in roughly the same space of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but even beyond that, like. I actually have a great deal of respect and fascination with Nicolas Cage because he he does something that I think is very underestimated in that he understands how other people see him and he knows how to control that narrative and how to lean into it when he wants to and back out of it when he wants to and subvert it when he wants to. And with Hell of a Book, so much of that the story is there about characters who are struggling with the idea of how do other people see me? And so that's why for me, Nicolas Cage became a, a kind of a crossover component. There's, you know, there's a scene in the book where, you, where he encounters Nicolas Cage. And that was a very fitting ability to tie together both the themes of the novel and my personal kind of fascination with this, this actor who I've never met. Mm-hmm. Because there is, there's a skill and there is a power in being able to both understand and control how other people see you. And so that's something that I just thought was very fascinating and just fit very well thematically with this novel yeah and um i do have to correct you and just state that it has always been cool to be a nicholas cage (laughs) um but do you have if you had to pick a favorite nicholas cage role what would it be oh man um all of them quite frankly um (laughs) but if i it would be between probably raising arizona and mandy one of his more recent ones Mm -hmm. um those those two in particular they just stick out above the and there's a lot to choose from i think those two in particular right now are my two of my favorites yeah very good um i have a five-year-old son and he currently thinks that every person uh on the street driving a motorcycle is ghost rider um and we <laughs> you're, a recently good watched, like you're a good parent yeah, like this. <laughs> we recently watched the first ghost rider film so that's my current favorite role just because i feel like um talk about something where he leaned into the like schlockiness of yes um, the performance that is where that all comes together um well, thank you, Jason. And thank you so much for writing this hilarious, heartbreaking, incredibly entertaining novel. I know that it's going to do very well, and I can't wait to introduce our listeners and customers here at Quillridge Books to it. Uh, listeners, I have been speaking with Jason Mott, author of Hell of a Book, which is published by our friends at Dutton, a division of Penguin Random House. Jason, thank you so much for joining me. Cool. Thank you so much for having me.
once again, I would like to thank Jason Mott for joining me. Copies of Hell of a Book can be ordered from www.quillridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.